Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, the scenario we suggested in last week's podcast has come to pass. The ceasefires collapsed with each side blaming the other. Israel has resumed its air and ground offensive and civilians are dying in large numbers again. We'll be looking at all that, but also telling you something about the mood inside Israel via a conversation I had with a contact who's been there throughout. Yes, and as we also suggested last week, the resumption of the IDF offensive has increased external pressure on Israel to stop, or at least to rein in its attacks. Inside the country, there's also some criticism of the government's strategy, not because of concerns over civilian casualties, but because of the risks the resumption of hostilities brings to the hundred or so hostages that Hamas are still holding. Let's deal with the outside pressure first. The tone from Washington has changed somewhat from the full-throated backing of the first few days post-7 October, hasn't it, Patrick? Yes, indeed. Last week, we spoke about the window of legitimacy, in quotes, available to the IDF before the Palestinian civilian death toll uh, weakened support for their ruthless approach. Well, that seems to be closing fast. It's what Washington says and thinks that counts in Tel Aviv most, of course. And the voices from Washington are full of anxiety, it would seem. The other day, the White House National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, stated that, quotes, too many innocent civilians have died in Gaza. He went on to say that the so-called no-strike zones that Israel has identified in southern Gaza, urging Palestinians to gather there where they'll be safe from airstrikes, have to be respected, saying... In those zones, we do expect Israel to follow through in not striking. So you could say that the White House has drawn a red line there and there'll be consequences if Israel steps over it. And in Europe, French President Emmanuel Macron has come out and said what a lot of people have been thinking, hasn't he, Saul? Yeah, that's right. He's been particularly outspoken among European leaders in questioning the IDF approach. His latest intervention was to say, we are at a moment when Israeli authorities must more precisely define their objectives and their final goal. The total destruction of Hamas, does anyone think that is possible? If this is the case, the war will last 10 years. Now, the Israelis are unlikely to pay much attention to the thoughts of President Macron, However, it is a question worth asking. Logically, the IDF position doesn't make much sense. According to their communiques, the Hamas center of gravity was in the north of the Gaza Strip. They've now occupied that and destroyed all Hamas bases and infrastructure, doing huge damage to houses and buildings in the process and displacing 1.7 million people. That's 80% of the population. They're now moving into the south and closing on the southern city of Khan Yunus, with airstrikes reported there and in the border town of Rafah. Presumably, the surviving Hamas leadership and fighters will be grouped there now, and going after them is only going to cause more civilian deaths. 200 are said to have been killed on the first day of resumed fighting, and this, of course, has led to more international opprobrium. Yes, it's difficult to see how the IDF can carry out its objectives without killing many more. Now, these no-strike zones are interesting, aren't they? Uh, These are the places where you're meant to go if you're going to be safe. There's one called Al-Mawasi on the west coast of the Strip, just next to Khan Yunus, which, according to a Sky News report a couple of days ago, was already hugely overcrowded. Now, what if the IDF gets intelligence that Hamas leaders like Yahya Sinwar or Mohammed Daif, the uh, leader of the military wing, the Izzedine al-Qasim brigades, 
What happens if they hear they're hiding in there? Um, it's been announced at the outset that these two were dead men walking. Now, if intel comes in that they're actually you know, sheltering among the civilian population, as the IDF has consistently said is their want, uh, will they go in after them, irregardless of all the carnage that will cause? And of course, um, as we said earlier, the possible danger to the Israeli hostages who might be killed in reprisal. Yeah, that's a big consideration. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that although the hostage for prisoner process has broken down with the Israeli negotiations packing up in Qatar, where the negotiations were taking place, 110 hostages, we should say, have been released to date. But Hamas is still holding more than another 100, according to Israeli figures. The government, of course, is under enormous pressure to get the rest out. And there are voices from families and also from the public in general wondering if a resumption of airstrikes and the ground assault is the best way of securing their release. But you've been speaking to someone in Israel, Patrick, who's been giving you some idea of the competing pressures the government is facing, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. So this is someone I've known for years, a Jewish friend who's a longtime resident of Israel, who's very well placed to take the public mood. Uh, and it's pretty bleak, uh, what you might call a siege mentality. Those are my words, not my friends. Basically, what's happened is that the 7th of October attack has severely undermined any feeling of security among the population. Uh, my friend said that in areas of Jerusalem uh, bordering Arab neighborhoods, the inhabitants are really living in fear that they're going to be attacked in their beds. So people have taken to carrying guns on, on outings to bars and restaurants. It's the same in the Jordan Valley. There was a report in the Haaretz newspaper uh, from a kibbutz there, and the reporter said that the kibbutzniks were bracing for an attack from neighboring Jordan. Now, this is an area where there hasn't been any violence for decades. Now, the consequence of that is that there's a widespread tendency, they say, to make no distinction between Hamas and the Arab population in general. Along with that, there's no sympathy really or disquiet about the scale of the uh, civilian casualties being inflicted by the IDF. And my friend recalled that back in 2002, there was an outcry when 15, one five civilians were killed in an airstrike on a Hamas leader in Gaza. And the disquiet was so great that the head of the IDF had to go on television to explain himself. Now, you know, with 15,000 dead perhaps, there's no public concern at all. The media aren't showing the images we're seeing of uh, terrified children and corpses wrapped in blankets. And in my friend's words, there's a feeling that it's not patriotic to show the suffering of the other side. So you know, on the TV news, it's, it's very much creating a, or rather building on a feeling of na national solidarity. Panels pop up um, with the words, together we will win. Now, all this, uh, my friend says, is pushing the population to the right. So uh, by this analysis, if the current mood persists, it would greatly benefit the far right in elections when they come. It's all very concerning, isn't it, Patrick? And, and we can, of course, see interesting parallels, slightly concerning parallels with the attitude of the British population during the Second World War, 
we were up against uh, one of the most evil regimes in history. Uh, but nevertheless, the response of the British public to the bombing of Germany, the rather ruthless in particular when it, when it became aerial bombing, was uh, not to have a lot of sympathy for the Germans, uh, just in the same way that you see the Israeli population not having a lot of sympathy for the innocents in Gaza. It's almost as though a, a job needs to be done. And if some people die during the process, and that's uh, something the Israeli public and the British public in the Second World War were prepared to put up with. I mean, it's not a myth, is it, Patrick, to say that there was, in general, a lot of support for the strategic bombing of Germany? No, you're absolutely right, Saul. I mean, um, area bombing, it was pretty clear from the term that it meant that everything uh, you know, in the target area was going to be hit, uh, including civilians. Now, this caused very little disquiet, so we shouldn't, uh, you know, we ought to be cautious when when uh, you know, perhaps thinking that this is uh, the Israeli attitude is is heartless. This is what happens when people feel that their lives, literally in this case, are, are under threat and they're surrounded by a sea of enemies. Uh, it may we may escape back from it and not see it like that, but uh, that's from my friend's analysis or my friend's observation. What is what is happening here? Yeah, in the case of Germany, it was pretty obvious from the outset that the uh, the idea of precision. Bombing was a bit of a myth, and that you know whole towns were being laid waste and, and set on fire. Now, how many voices were raised in protest against it? Very few. There were a couple of uh, rather brave churchmen and one or two parliamentarians who stood up and and said, "This is immoral. This is unchristian, etc." But you know, someone like George Orwell, who had a pretty tender conscience, you might think, uh, broadcast on the BBC saying, "You know, this is what happens." when you bomb us, essentially. I mean, you've got to remember that the strategic bombing campaign didn't get underway really until after we had endured the Blitz when about 130,000 uh, innocent civilians were killed. Well, in the British and American uh, bombing campaign of Germany, some about 600,000 civilians were killed. So, yeah, um, and it was only long afterwards that people started questioning the morality of all this. And I think... Uh, you know, the, the concerns of people like Winston Churchill were not about uh, the, the rights and wrongs of doing it, but about the optics, as we would say now. So he, after the Dresden bombing in February 1944, uh, excuse me, February 1945, he started worrying about the Allies' sort of claim to the moral high ground might be undermined by operations of that sort. So, yeah, uh, always good to to look to the past to try and understand the present. It's interesting, actually, that there have been conflicting reports this week about this sort of level of atrocity committed by Hamas. Now, this is not to, you know, devalue it or, or to belittle it in any sense. But on the one hand, you've got the report by Christina Lamb in the Sunday Times, you know, stressing the fact, I mean, she's written a book about, about rape being used as a kind of weapon by armies in the past. And, and she's written a report that says that there's a lot of evidence that there was a deliberate attempt by Hamas to rape as many women as possible, particularly in the in the festival that was going on there. And that some some people were gang raped so badly. I, you know, I'm horrified to give this bit of detail, but there it is, uh, so badly that their their pelvises were broken. On the other hand, Patrick, a lot of those early reports that we heard that babies were beheaded, it seems that only one baby was killed and it was not beheaded, although some other victims were. So you obviously get exaggeration on the one hand, but you know, let's not kid ourselves. The killing, the deliberate killing of 1,200 civilians was bad enough, even without the exaggerations. 
Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think we've got to understand, put ourselves in the, in the place of the Israelis, and uh, and understand why they might uh, they've they've been brought up on on this sense that they're in hostile territory. I mean, everyone has to join the army, with a few exceptions. Uh, the religious have managed to get the ultra religious have managed to get exemptions. So yeah, it's a it's a militarized society where you're always living with the the thought of, of violence. So when it actually happens, uh, I think the, the, the reaction is extreme. It's like all the nightmares have come true. So yeah, I think that goes a long way uh, to explaining this um, very hard line that public opinion seems to have taken. Okay, that's all we have time for for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, to start off with, I just want to flag up the fact that uh, we've got a new email account, and that is, listen up, podbattleground, all one word, at gmail.com. I'll repeat that, podbattleground at gmail.com. So that's uh, where you should send your questions to henceforth. It's a great part of the pod. We really appreciate them. So do keep them coming to that address. Okay, we've got a, a, an email rather than the question here. Um, it's from Lou Charbonneau, and he says, I've been a regular listener for, a, for around six months. It's an excellent podcast and a key part of my week. As a former journalist, I was at Reuters for the better part of two decades, currently at Human Rights Watch and a part-time academic. I find it extremely helpful for my work. And I welcome the analysis of the Gaza conflict in addition to the Ukraine focus. One point he wants to make is about the Gaza casualty death toll figures. The Gaza Ministry of Health, MOH, stopped reporting these figures on November 11th. And that task is now handled by the government media office in Gaza. Uh, you've continued citing the MOH, just wanted to flag that up. So thank you very much for that, Lou. Um, I, I suppose the question it's worth asking, Patrick, is are the figures coming out of the GMO, the government media office, likely to be any more accurate than those coming out of the Gaza Ministry of Health? That's not a, a point that Lou gives an opinion on. Do you have any ideas on that? Uh, well, it's, uh, this is a very knotty subject, isn't it? It's a very difficult one to actually get any real sense of accuracy in the current circumstances. My feeling, I know that you don't agree with me about this, Saul, is that those numbers are not wildly exaggerated. They're probably uh, there or thereabouts. There's a lot of difficulty actually reporting casualties because uh, a lot of buildings have been demolished. As from the beginning, people have been saying there are probably corpses lying in the rubble somewhere that haven't been recovered yet. And the way that it was actually being measured up until now was the number of people actually brought into a hospital. Uh, so who knows how many people were buried without actually having been logged at a hospital. So, so we don't know. But I think you know, quibbling about numbers at this point is not really very helpful. A number will emerge at the end, and I'm pretty sure we'll all be pretty dismayed by it. Um, I don't think there is whole-scale manufacturing of data going on here. Historical precedents suggest that these figures will, um, will not be um, outlandish uh, when a final reckoning is done. Okay, we've actually had a couple of uh, questions about the the kind of breakdown. So not the total number of casualties, but about the breakdown. If you remember, Patrick, last week, we had someone asking, well, why were 70% women and children? What's happened to all the men? Well, a couple of people <laughs> pointed out, actually, when you do the math, that makes a lot of sense. The point being that 
almost half the population of Gaza are considered to be children, that is under 18. So that leaves, of course, the other 50%. And if you divide that out roughly between men and women, that's why you get that figure of about 70% adding up to women and children. So in that sense, it does make sense, even if there's an even split, you don't have to have all the men hiding, as, as one of our previous listeners suggested. Yeah, that, that came from Martin. Thanks for that pointing that. It's good, actually, that people do uh, you know, correct us where they can. I mean, that point from Lou is well taken. So thanks for, for uh, flagging that up to us. We've got an interesting one here from uh, Gavin Marshall, who says, uh, this is about the pod with Jason, which you conducted last week, Patrick. He says, uh, Jason's stridence in shooting down the one-state proposal stirred me to send you this paper written by Dr. Ephraim Nimney in 2018. He posits a two-state solution will never work and give the reasons and circumstances why. And the sort of follow-up on that is a kind of support for your argument, Patrick, that the one state may be the only solution. Well, we don't have time to read out the whole article. It's a very interesting article, actually, but I'm just going to read out a little bit of it because it gives a sense of the argument arguments that Nimni's making. The article reviews the international consensus on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that there should be a two-state solution and finds it unworkable on several counts. And these are the counts. The high population density makes it impossible to partition the small land without leaving unwanted pockets of one people in the territory of the other. It is not possible for any Israeli government to dismantle settlements in the West Bank. And in a small and overcrowded territory, it is not feasible to have monocultural nation-states as the population is evenly divided between the two conflicting national communities that reside in overlapping areas. In the face of this deadlock, the article recalls to the 90-year proposal by some enlightened Jewish personalities to create a binational state under the modality of national cultural autonomy. Now, you'll have to read the article to get more sort of detail from it, but it is quite interesting, isn't it, Patrick? And uh, do, do you think any of those points hold true about why the two-state can't work? Yeah, I mean, at the outset of all this, I did sort of immediately, like everyone, reach for the old Oslo Accords and the two-state solution. But the more I thought about it, the more unlikely it is that this will ever come to pass for those reasons that, that Dr. Nimney points out. He's an interesting guy. He's um, he's actually at Queen's University, Belfast. He certainly was at QUB. Um, he's actually Argentinian-born. He's an expert on, on the region, not just uh, Israel-Palestine, but also Turkey and elsewhere. And yeah, I've made a mental note to try and get him on the pod at some future date. But yeah, I, I think the two-state solution, I'm coming to the conclusion that the two-state solution is a dead duck. However, unlike to continue with the <laughs> animal metaphors, last week, uh, Jason shot down the, what he referred to as the pig, pig with wings, the, the idea of a unitary state. He said that uh, that is a pig that is not going to fly. But yeah, I think that it's becoming increasing. Obviously, we've got to think very, very radically if we're going to actually finally uh, resolve this problem. It may be a, a long way off yet. And for what my friend was telling me from Israel, public opinion has got to move a hell of a long way before anyone's uh, in the mood for, for radical solutions like a, a unitary state. But I think in the long run, this is the only one that has any chance of actually working. Um, but we've got a hell of a lot of work to do on both sides, changing people's minds uh, before that's going to actually get onto the table. Interesting message from Zach. Hello, guys. Love the podcast. Although there are many women serving in the Israeli Defense Forces, they are not treated the equal standard as their male counterparts. And he gives the example, uh, which I read about, actually, I'm sure you have 
too, Pauci. The example of gender inequality would be in the weeks and months leading up to the Hamas attacks on October 7, when many female soldiers who are employed as sort of spotters uh, guarding the fence around Gaza, who notice unusual and suspicious activity, including drone simulations and raiding practices on Israeli watchtowers. And when they reported these sightings, they were generally not believed. Uh, You're dreaming, said one commander, and another, why are you waking me up from my sleep? Maybe, says Zach, if Israel had treated their female soldiers with respect, the world would be a different place today. Well, that may be going a little bit too far, but it is interesting, isn't it? That it, it you know, it's often cited as an example of a, a very modern military with a lot of women, of course, because there is national service for both men and women. But it seems that they aren't always treated or surprise, surprise, to uh, similar standards as the men. Israel is is full of contradictions, actually, on this issue, because you do have, uh, historically, you have very important political figures like Golda Meir, but there's a strong kind of streak of uh, machismo, I would say, having lived there, uh, running through society in general. So women are very well represented in political and economic and, indeed, the military sphere. But the ethos is, I found anyway, quite masculine, I have to say. Um, it's going to go, long-time listeners will remember our friend Ivares from Lithuania, who we haven't heard from for a while, but he's popped up again. And he says, uh, I think that Israel should occupy Gaza, get rid of terrorist Hamas totally, and create conditions in Gaza through time that could take Palestinians out of poverty. Because as long as there is poverty and misery, people will support radicals. How about such thinking? Well, I think, Alvarez, you you have a pretty rose-heated view of of the situation in that part of the world. Poverty, to my mind, and you know, like I say, having you know experienced the conditions firsthand, both in Gaza and the West Bank, is not really the problem. They, one of the tragedies of this story is that the Palestinians and the Israelis have a lot in common. They both prize education. They're by and larger you know, pretty educated bunch. Uh, they think in many similar ways about, you know, how life should be lived. And so, you know, given the constraints that they're operating under, Gaza is not an unprosperous place. If you, I don't know if anyone's seen the images of uh, that came out of life uh, before uh, all this began. And you can, you know, you can lead a semi-normal life in Gaza, doing the same thing that everyone else does, enjoying the same things. There's a five-star hotel that just been built on the beach uh, near Gaza City. And so, yeah, it's uh, a lot of money has come into the place, both from the international community, huge sort of funding from the Arab world as well. You might call it guilt money, or so that's what the Palestinians would call it probably. But yeah, so I don't think it's actually prosperity that is the issue here. It's more about identity. It's about the will to actually live in your your own life, in your own way, making your own rules, etc. I mean, basically, it's about freedom. It's about independence. Uh, and that is what is at issue here. Yes, we've got another message from uh, the United States, Benjamin Galandiuk. And this is sort of links into what you've just been talking about, Patrick. He's referring back to Jason Pack's interview. His proposed solution is certainly novel and might, might, says Benjamin, even have some grounds in realism. This, of course, is the sort of pan-Arabic solution in which they're given a kind of five to 10-year medium-term control over the Gaza Strip and uh, and presumably also the West Bank 
in which they bring in some investment and they also take control of security. So Benjamin goes on to say, but one question jumped out at me during the interview and is still not being answered by the end. The various Arab states give money and vocal support to the Palestinian cause. I'm sure their reasons for doing so vary, but it has seemed to me that many of their governments do it for primarily PR reasons rather than that of a genuine desire to help the Palestinians build a stable and prosperous society. So what Benjamin's really asking is, given that as a premise and given the fact that, uh, as he puts it, uh, they may even have a vested interest in keeping the Israeli-Arab conflict going because then it creates a sort of, you know, a demon, an enemy which they can, you know, use for presumably spending on arms and also some of their foreign policy. You know, are they ever really going to come on board in this way? And it's an interesting question, isn't it? He finishes off by saying, do we have any indication that this is something that is getting on board with this pan-Arabic solution, these governments would realistically be interested in doing. What if no governments with the needed resources are willing to take part in such a plan? Well, we need to find out whether they are. And Egypt's already suggested that it might be willing to uh, be involved. But do you think he's onto something here, Patrick? I mean, are a lot of Arab states actually quite pleased with the instability that Israel brings? Um, I wouldn't go as, as far as that, Saul, but I would say it is useful for them in the way that Benjamin points out. It does actually act as a sort of safety valve for pressure from below on their own regime. So by diverting anger away from their sort of poor governance or whatever and turning it towards the Israel-Palestine conflict is a way of sort of getting them off the hook, if you like. So they're, you know, in that sense, it's, it's sort of quite useful, I suppose. But Benjamin makes another good point, I think, which is that if the if Arab states, Gulf states, I think is really what Jason was talking about, plus Egypt, do get involved, it's, it's quite a high-risk decision because they're actually, as, as Jason points out, require these states to invest their prestige and reputation as well as requiring them to put boots on the ground with the consequence or the risk of a very public humiliation and loss of face if the arrangement went poorly it would also actually paradoxically put them in the position of occupiers and having to conduct their own counterinsurgencies against Hamas and other Palestinian groups. So these are you know, very unwelcome scenarios which are highly likely. Uh, I think he's right to say that. But on the broader issue of Palestine, yeah, there's a lot of kind of talking the talk uh, that's gone on for decades in the Arab world about the iniquities of the situation but not very much sort of um, practical help or political or diplomatic help being offered. It's A lot of it is rhetoric. And the, the kind of role of the Palestinians in the Arab world is quite sort of ambiguous. As I was saying, they tend to be you know, educated, able people. And so they've spread out through the, there's a Palestinian diaspora in the Arab world, often working as engineers, educators, businessmen, etc. And there's a sort of slight feeling of, of uh, resentment towards them, I think, in some cases, at the fact they are quite kind of can-do people. And uh, their sort of energy and uh, skill is often puts some of the locals uh, into a poor light. So the relationship is complicated. Question from Rosemary Whitman about military tactics. And she asks, with Hamas underground in a vast network of tunnels, why has it been necessary to bomb so extensively above ground where the vast majority of people are civilians. 
Well, it's a very good question. Uh, we've dealt with this a little bit before, and it does seem that the IDF tactics are in an attempt to minimize their own casualties, to basically destroy any position that could be used as a kind of defensive redoubt. But Rosemary's probably right. I mean, how many Hamas fighters are actually above ground? Well, we know that some are because Israeli soldiers are still dying. I think we're currently up to about 75. Is that right, Patrick? But it's still a relatively small number. And does it justify the question we've asked before, and we, we will be asking again, does it justify this wholesale destruction of what in the main has to be civilian buildings and houses uh, when in reality, uh, most of these Hamas fighters are hiding underground? It, it does seem slightly mystifying. And, and for all the arguments that people are still giving, we've got a lot of questions this week from people saying, well, you know, why don't you put yourself in the position of the Israelis? It's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. We've dealt with a little bit, actually, Patrick, by talking about the way we reacted to the Germans in the Second World War, how ruthless we were and determined we were to wipe them out. And if civilians die, then that's something that just uh, had to be accepted. But the problem is, as bystanders, that is, as Britons looking at this and the rest of the Western world, in fact, the rest of the world generally, it is still quite difficult to get your head around that so much uh, destruction needs to take place and so many civilians need to die to carry out what is, in the end, a military objective. Yeah, which is, I think we all agree, unfeasible. The destruction of Hamas is unfeasible. On that question of the material destruction that's been done to Gaza, there's a very interesting um, segment on the BBC website on their verification service, which is trying to work out just what the scale is. I think they're working with the City University of New York uh, research department as well. And I think they're calculating that 100,000 buildings have been damaged, it says. Well, damage is not just a few bits of you know, plaster coming off from a shrapnel strike or something. This is like pretty much raised to the ground. It does make very uh, dramatic viewing, uh, the sort of before and after imagery from the north of, of Gaza. And yeah, I mean, just whole areas have just been reduced to rubble, literally. So um, re it really does um, make you wonder about how long it will take when this is over for the place to get anything back to normality again and how many people are going to be displaced how many people are going to be living in tents under plastic sheeting like the imagery we've seen from the south um and for how long before they can actually get back to to a proper a proper home all right we've got an interesting uh, email about salem milan patrick so i think this is one for you yeah this is from cliff thompson who said that uh, he's you know a regular listener to the podcast and was Delighted to hear that a hero of his, Sailor Milan, the great South African World War II Battle of Britain fighter pilot, uh, that his name popped up last week. And he says that he's actually been, uh, he grew up, of course, as a South African himself, hearing much about, about Sailor Milan, but hearing it from both sides as a hero of the Second World War, but from the hardliner Africana Brigade. He was a traitor because he actually opposed apartheid. He was a, a hero in that respect as well. And um, so was delighted to, to hear that he got a mention on the podcast. Now, he's actually done a, a lot of research on Sailor Milan. Four years he's been at it, and he's really looking for an outlet for, for his researchers. But we'll have to scratch our heads and think about that one. But certainly there'll be opportunities in the future, Cliff, when we might dig into Sailor Milan more deeply. In a couple of weeks' time, we're starting a new series called Battleground 44, which is going to be looking at all the high points of uh, that great 
year in the Second World War. So uh, I'm trying to remember what Salem Milan was doing in 1944, but I'm sure we could work him in somewhere. <laughs> so do do uh, look out for that one, listeners, and that'll be coming to you in the new year. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Just to reiterate, we have a new email address that is pod battleground all one word at gmail.com so do keep the questions coming in for both gaza and ukraine and join us on friday when we have a very special guest actually who we hope is going to give us wonderful insight into what is going on inside russia and this is a young journalist who very courageously has been reporting we won't be able to give her name for obvious reasons but she is going to give us great insight into some of the recent trials of ukrainian prisoners of war, the Wagner mutiny, and the prospects for the presidential election next year. Goodbye. Goodbye.